Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In Ephesians and in Colossians, but we could add John, you know, the prologue to John. We could add the book of Revelation. We could add Romans. We could add many to this, but many places we have examples of Christ as the very center of creation's purpose. And the implication of these verses is that the meaning of all things is summed up. Here is the meaning of creation. So let's start with Ephesians 1, 9 to 11. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. This is a very broad statement. The purposes of heaven, of earth, they've all come together in Christ. Very similar passage, look at Colossians 1, 15 to 22. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I don't know how you could say it in a broader fashion. One of the implications of this understanding, I'm going to start on the negative and then I'm coming to the positive, so wait for the positive. And it's here in the passage, it's in both passages, that we can get the wrong meaning and will get the wrong meaning of everything. I mean, that's the implication, right? Apart from Christ. That is, we have a mode of meaning that's cosmic in scale that's wrong. If we say it's a lie, we could put it that way. Paul describes it as alienated, hostile, and evil. Christ, then, is the true meaning, but he's also the exposure. He exposes the false meaning. Those two things have to go together. And so we could examine this on a small scale, you know, what we call sin. This is the way Paul does it. Even Paul uses the example of an illicit romantic relationship to illustrate this. We could use war. We could use it on a large scale. Evil has the same structure. Sin has the same structure. That's my point. And that's what Christ exposes throughout, equating human failure, you know, to slavery, to warfare. And so the big biblical claim, and I would also say the psychoanalytic claim, but we won't do the psychoanalytic part today, is that all share the same structure. 
And they each generate meaning through this structure. That is this false understanding. And that's partly why we have to understand Christ in cosmic terms. Because we have a cosmic problem. All depend upon a split or divide. Which generates a struggle. Or a drive in which the imagined goal is love, peace, power, success. And that's equated with the resolution to the struggle. We imagine we fight enough wars, we'll get peace. We have enough illicit romantic relationship, we're looking for love in all the wrong places, right? Let me give you, you probably think you don't come to church to hear the perverse, but, but let me give you a kind of perverse I'm just building on what Paul is describing here. The logic of this perverse reasoning. And I'll give it to you in several areas. And what I'm saying is it's always the same logic. True love. It cannot be obtained through the law. As the deep core of myself. Deep within me. By definition. That's beyond the law. I can't be equated with or captured in something so prosaic as a norm, a law, or a covenant. Deep within me resides the essence of who I am. And this essence is in excess of the law, beyond the human norms or the human symbolic order. Something as, you know, the relationship to one's spouse. It's the prototypical social obligation. But how can this obligation, this contract, capture my true essence? Social life consists of an externally imposed law in which I cannot possibly recognize myself. The bind in no way captures the fullness of my capacity for love. Or maybe my capacity to be loved. I'm being the devil here, so, so be careful. Instead, it curtails the depths of my desire, and that pertains to my true self. And strangely, I experience this depth of love most completely when I feel the imposition of the law. When I feel the forces of society and law as an imposition of my love then I know that the precious treasure deep within my core can only be loved without being submitted to the law. I just took you through the reasoning behind having an illicit romantic relationship. But I'm going to say it's the same reasoning. The very definition of peace is the resolution achieved through war. You know, you get love. How do you get love? Well, you have to go beyond the boundaries. There's no peace apart from war which defines it. Maybe it would be unrecognizable apart from war. Just as perverse love depends upon its opposition, war is not only the means to peace, but it's a symptom. And that's my point here. It's a symptom of an ever-elusive peace. Just as love is dependent upon, and I mean illicit love, the logic of exception, you know, that which exists as an exception to the law, there is a notion of peace that is a symptom of war. 
That is, we'll never obtain this peace because that's the nature of it. We're always fighting to gain the peace and that's not the way you gain the peace. It's an exception creating the rule of continuous warfare. And it's not a positive entity in and of itself. And the contradiction of achieving peace through war seems to pose itself. Maybe it's even more directly transgressive. Maybe we can see that easier. But it's the same thing. Oh, the way we get peace is we do violence. We have war. Yet the path to peace through total war and obliteration, it just seems inevitable. Let me do one more. There is only one way to be in control, right? To be a master. A master of the universe. And you have to have a slave. Apart from this enslaved other, the master cannot exist. The slave may have the advantage in freeing himself from dependence on the master at least in Hegel's depiction. But he will always identify himself over and against the other. Now what Hegel does, this is also what Freud does, but this is what the New Testament does. It says that within ourselves, we are the master and we are the slave. And the contradiction shows itself in this psychology when we're playing both master and slave. This is Freudian the superego and ego, or this is the Apostle Paul, the law of my mind and the law of my body. Same thing. And he actually uses the word ego. And in this only continual self-punishment will bring either the pleasure found in ultimate control or an overcoming of that control. This is asceticism. Why are people masochistic? Because they're the master gaining control, but they're also the slave Enduring this pain, this suffering, that are the very means of domination and power. And of course, when we reduce it to the individual, the contradiction comes out. The pleasure is in the pain. And the suffering is the power. That is, it all just gets run together. But what I'm saying is that each system, whether we're talking the individual or the corporate, it's the same twisted logic. To gain life, peace, love, substance is turned into the drive toward death, war, transgression, and annihilation. The ultimate subject is gained, we imagine, through a final overcoming. And the illusion is to imagine the goal can survive the struggle or survive beyond the struggle. In every instance, the subject, whatever the goal is, which would be obtained it's generated. Peace is generated by the ideal of the war. True love is generated by this continual search. Mastery is generated by this enslavement. And the lure of the system is to imagine the transgression, the conflict, the subjugation is a means to an end when it is the means which is generating an imagined end and a possible end. I've just described sin. This is the problem of sin. What if we don't recognize this is sin and we reduce the work of Christ to fit the problem rather than to defeat it? And that's why I think we have to go with Ephesians and Colossians in this cosmic picture. The failure to do this explains the inadequate forensic explanations, law-based explanations 
of the work of Christ in which God is the subject gaining satisfaction from his own punishment. Why does God punish the son? Anselm of Canterbury says to gain satisfaction. Sounds like a masochist. God is reduced to a dialectical struggle in which the father deploying evil men to kill his son. This is Calvinism. That he might have the satisfaction of suffering and death. That is that evil is something God does in a Calvinist system. Eternal suffering in hell is equated with the suffering of the son on the cross. So that no distinction can be made between those that torture the son. You know the evil men that kill Christ and torture him in the passion and the father who requires that they carry out this torture. They say, yeah, God's doing that. And he requires this eternal torture, maybe as part of his eternal justice. What I'm saying is that we can take the work of Christ and reduce it to the problem of sin, to this contradictory nature of the sin problem. And that's precisely what Christ has come to expose. Revelation is not the revealing in this system of a new truth of exposing the lie. And that's what I'm saying it is. Oh, we need the, the lie exposed. And if we take Christ as part of the system, I'm saying that's what's happened. This sinful system just repeats itself. Then the law is not mitigated. It's not corrected. It's not suspended. But it becomes the economy for explaining the work of Christ. That is, life is in the law. Paul says that's sin. And yet we've taken that to be salvation. We've taken the problem to be the solution. Rather than the work of Christ exposing the meaning systems of this world, his meaning is very often subsumed into this world order. If you ask me what the problem of evangelicalism is, this is the theological part of this problem. This order explains why the name of Christ has been invoked for holocausts, inquisitions, crusades, war, and the worst of human horrors. Christ is incorporated into the dialectic which supports sexual transgression, war, slavery, and which aggravates and does not cure the human disease. There's the negative. But Christ as revelation, here is the positive. Exposing the lie of this world's violent wisdom. He establishes an alternative truth. He establishes a positive peace. He establishes real love. And he establishes true identity. Christianity as revelation, maybe we need to write revelation capital R, exposes a world order built upon this death-dealing orientation. You know, that's what Paul, he connects it to alienation and hostility. Christ as God, as the cosmic Christ, as the full openness of God. He's not an addendum, but Christ is the meaning of who God is. Christ is revelation then in this twofold sense. He exposes the lie but that's only going to happen if we get the cosmic aspect that he's serving as the foundation to an alternative world of meaning and truth.
Everything is changed up in Christ. Christ is the structuring order. That's what Ephesians is saying. That's what Colossians is saying. He's the structuring order, the inner ground of creation, and it is in him that creation's purpose is revealed. And so in Christ, love, peace, identity, they're not an effect, a symptom. You know, we don't gain peace through war. We don't gain love through transgression. We don't gain identity through oppression. But in the words of Athanasius, these things are all an effect. We gain them through Christ. Now let me just say that maybe a part of the problem, the hurdle here, in the notion of Christ as the key element is that we have an attachment to human history, human decision, human time as the controlling factor in the purposes of God. Why did Jesus come? What does Colossians say? What does Ephesians say? Does it say that he came simply to save us from sin? I think that's part of it, but that's not what they're talking about, right? The work of Christ is subsequent in many people's picture to sin. But that's not the way these passages are picturing it. It says that he's predestined in Ephesians 1.4 before the foundation of the world. There is no choice preceding the choice of God. Human choice does not affect the choice of God. Jesus Christ is not a contingent reflection of God. This is who God is. That's the difference here. The work of Christ is not dependent upon the fall of man. It's not dependent upon sin. But creation is an outworking of the love of God found in Christ. Paul says it pertains to who God is in himself. Having made known to us, I'm reading back again in Ephesians, made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Do we know what the will of God is? Oh, we do in Christ. Do we know what the will of God is apart from Christ? We don't. The will of God, in other words, doesn't reside in some dark, transcendent council. He's revealed his will. Love, peace, and human wholeness they cannot be adequately grounded in a salvation geared to simply deliverance from sin as they will continue to be grounded in a failed cosmic order. That is, we make Christ himself a kind of dialectic. There's sin and salvation, you know, there's the fall and then Jesus rescues us. There's rescue, but it's bigger than that and it's more positive than that. Only by recognizing Christ as the foundation of a new order of meaning, I think, can we escape. This is a personal escape. It's not just a logic. I think it's just built into us. In the nature of desire, in transgressive love, war, oppression. Salvation is indeed the overcoming of sin. I'm not taking that away. But it accomplishes this overcoming only in a positive fullness and return to Christ as the completion of creation's purpose. God's plan in Christ is beyond human meaning. It is an outworking of God's love, God's peace, God's identity, and we participate in who God is. Now this is lost to us, partly. 
St. Francis of Assisi, the Franciscan order, I think this is what he rediscovers. Maybe you've heard of Karl Barth. He was perhaps the premier theologian of the 20th century. He rediscovers this. This is why they talk about Karl Barth dropping a bombshell in the playground of the theologians. He talks about the Bible. He says, we're entering a strange new world when we enter the world of the Bible. And what he's depicting is this cosmic aspect. And it's only in recognizing the incarnation. That's not a fallback plan of God utilized due to the accident of sin. This is creation's purpose. He willed this. He predestined this. That's what these verses are saying. He provides coherence. He explains, you know, this is the fullness of salvation. Salvation isn't simply deliverance from a negative thing. It's deliverance to a positive wholeness. Predestination. You know the way we think of that? Oh, he predestined some to be in and some to be out. That's not what these verses are talking about. He predestined all things in Christ. Redemption. The fullness of redemption is to enter into this positive participation in who God is. So for Bart, this decision of God before all time to be who he is for humanity is the basic truth on which all other Christian truths are built. And in his reformulation of the doctrine, it becomes central. God is the electing God. But maybe Bart also has not fully recovered the original sense. And I'm talking about it's there in scripture and it's there in the early church, among the earliest church fathers. And that is that the word of Jesus is not simply the disincarnate Christ, but the incarnate Christ. Athanasius, he doesn't speak hardly at all of the birth of Christ. We tend, you know, with Christmas, oh, that's the main thing. But he talks about the incarnation. That's the principle behind creation. That's what Colossians and Ephesians are describing. Creation's purpose is found in Christ. And this is the meaning of predestination. He is the predestined one, and we are found in him. Redemption is cosmic completion. And the church's part in this is a continued incarnation. And so Jesus Christ is the unfolding, singular purpose of all things. We've got passages like Romans 9 to 11. Calvinism is largely based on a misreading of Romans 9 to 11. It's not a depiction of an arbitrary cruelty. That's what Calvin takes it as. As if some pots are made for destruction, and that's it. God does it. That decides it. The counsels of God are dark. How can we understand? Israel's election or predestined purpose had always involved being narrowed down to the preeminent purpose of the Messiah, who indeed would be cast down by evil men, not simply for Israel or a few lucky souls, but for the redemption of the world, for God so loved the world. This is a cosmic thing that is taking place in Christ. Paul notes that God has shut up all in disobedience in Romans 11.32, which is the end of his argument there that he may show mercy to all. And then ends on a note of universality that's there in Colossians and Ephesians. 
For from him and through him and to him are all things, Paul says. We know this due to the incarnate Christ. He's summing up all things in the heavens and on the earth, Ephesians says. This is what and who has been predestined, Paul says, before the foundation of the world. We didn't bring this about through sin. God brought this about through creation. There is no choice preceding the choice of God. This is an eternal fact about God. Who Christ is, who Jesus is, is an eternal fact about God. So Jesus is not a contingent reflection dependent upon creation and fall. He is the outworking of the love of God. Paul says he describes it as who God is, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. And so salvation is not simply deliverance from sin, but fulfillment of who God is in Christ for creation. Where Jesus is reduced to helping us get rid of sin, and simply that, what gets lost are the purposes for all creation fulfilled in Christ, but also in the church as a continuation of this. Certainly salvation, I, you know, I don't mean to undermine this in any way. It is an overcoming of sin, but the danger is we would overcome sin in the way that we would gain peace through violence, through war, or in the way we would gain love through continual transgression. Paul has moved our understanding of God's plan beyond the outworking of human meaning. Rather, it's on the basis of the love of God and not on the basis of human meaning. The whole point of who God is and what God is doing is in Christ. It's summed up in Christ. Here is the completion of creation. This accounts for the movements of all of history. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 9 to 11. And, you know, throughout there's a kind of incompleteness in creation. We see this in Genesis, and Paul will talk about this in the New Testament. There's the creation of the man, but creation's not complete, right? And then there's the creation of the woman. There is an unfolding aspect to creation's purpose. The completion of man by the creation of woman means creation is an open-ended process. It hasn't ended in Genesis 1, in which the whole inner basis of humankind, contained in the name Adam, Adam just means man, Eve, it just means woman, the whole inner basis is an ongoing realization. This is why Jesus is called the second Adam. He completes the emergence of the human capacity for image bearing. And the second Adam and his bride, the church, conjoin the human and divine for eternity. Paul pictures it both as an accomplished fact. He says this in Romans 5.18. Through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Through Christ, things are made right. Things are completed. Things are perfected. That's the language. And there is an unfolding, he says, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The church, as the bride of Christ, indicates cosmic predestination was always the unfolding telos. 
summing up all things. Paul says, for this reason, he's quoting Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, he says, but wait a minute. I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. Here is creation and here is its fulfillment in Christ. Here is the revealing of the mystery of the will of God, Paul says in 1.9. And so what was preserved in the focus on the primacy of Christ? I think among the Franciscans with Karl Barth in the Eastern Church is this Pauline notion that Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Colossians, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. It's the Johannine notion of Christ's recommencement of creation, the fulfillment of creation, what might be considered the fundamental doctrine of the New Testament. It's the glue which holds it all together. Maximus, the confessor, and he's significant, he's an Eastern theologian, he held that the incarnation would have taken place without the fall. Duns Scotus, who is actually a Western theologian, but a Franciscan, he says the incarnation takes place in light of God's glory and not due to any sin committed prior to the incarnation. God is perfect love and wills according to the perfection of that love. That perfection is unfolding. Since perfect love cannot will anything less than the perfection of love, Christ would have come in the highest glory in creation, even if there was no sin, and thus no need for redemption. We are being completed positively in Christ, and not simply in a negative fashion. This is just the standard understanding among the early church fathers. Irenaeus insisted on the primacy of the incarnate word, with salvation not restricted to redemption from sin, but inclusive of a process, he says, by which all are led from infancy to a state of maturity, and which in his doctrine of recapitulation includes the summing up of the entire cosmos in Christ as the head. With this understanding as background, the language of the New Testament is changed up. Justification or rectification. They're of cosmic proportion. It's not just my personal justification. It's not just me that's being made right, but the world is being made right. Things ain't right, and God is making them right through Christ. Such terms as faith pertain to Christ. He's not just an object of our faith, but is the ground of faith. We participate in his faith. Through the death and resurrection of this faithful one, the powers which hold people in bondage are defeated as they take up the cross. This pertains not so much to reduplication of faith, but participation in faith's origin. That is, we are co-participants in the faith of Christ. As Bart describes it, we have a part in the faithfulness of God. That's the significance of this covenant relationship. He begins with Abraham and fulfills through Jesus. As John Paul II put it, Christ satisfied the Father's eternal love. That fatherhood that from the beginning found expression in creating the world. Why did God create the world? Because of his love, his great love, his outflowing love. 
Christ doesn't satisfy the wrath of God. He satisfies the love of God. And so do we. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.